This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So you ever go through the drive-thru, like say you're going to Starbucks, and you go through the drive-thru, and when you go to pick up your drink, uh, they let you know that like the car in front of you bought your drink for you. And they're like, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Except it never fails that it's on the day that you ordered like a tall black coffee. Right, 295, the most basic thing on the menu. But imagine, imagine if you ordered the quad shot venti latte, okay, and, and the bacon gouda breakfast sandwich, and you got a bottle of water to boot just to wash the breakfast sandwich down. And then you pull up and they say, just wanted to let you know the car in front of you offered to pay for your breakfast, right? $17.19, a second mortgage on their house they're taking out to pay for your breakfast, right? To the point, you're not only feeling grateful, you're feeling a little guilty because they may have offered to buy your breakfast without actually knowing how much your breakfast was going to cost. But the thing is, you knew the cost, and that made you more appreciative, didn't it? Because the greater the cost, the greater the gift. And the greater the gift, the greater the gratitude for the gift. And that's what we see here in chapter 3 of Hosea as we continue in this season of Lent, this extended season of reflection and repentance, seeing into the heart of God through the story of the prophet Hosea in these opening three chapters, seeing the story of his love this morning, his love for his unfaithful wife, a story that shows us what his love cost. And remember, this is a story that serves as a, as a metaphor for God's love, love for his unfaithful people that reveals uh, the depth of their sin and thereby the depth of our sin and thereby revealing the extent of God's love. And this morning, we're going to see what that love cost him helping us see the greater the cost, the greater the gift, and the greater the gift, the greater the gratitude for the gift. So here in this morning's story in Hosea 3, we're going we're gonna to see a command that God gives to Hosea to go and rescue his wife. And we're going to see Hosea's response. We're going to see his love lived out and what that love cost him. Third, we're going to see how this story conveys Israel's story and then as we have each week, we're going to close with this message of hope, the good news of Hosea, seeing God's love for his people, seeing God's love for us. And so we start with God's command, the story, this is where the story of Hosea begins. It begins with a command God gave to God. So if you haven't already, let's pull out our Bibles, pull out your Bibles, open them up to the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's going to be about that far the way through, roughly, uh, right after the major prophets, right before the New Testament. Hosea, he writes in verse 1, he says, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. If you remember back to the first week, God initially told Hosea to go and take a wife of whoredom, to, to love a woman that he knew would never love him the way he loved her, to marry a woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him, knowing that she would break his heart by breaking their marriage covenant. But not just that, he asked him to do a second thing. He asked him to care for her children of whoredom, these children that she had with some other man that she brought home, choosing to love them and adopt them and to raise them as his own. 
And Hosea, he did exactly as God commanded. And after the birth of their first son, she did exactly as God had predicted. Playing the whore and going after other lovers, as we saw last week. Whoever would give her whatever it was that she wanted, whatever she desired. And as hard as that had to be, I can't help but feel that what God was asking him to do now was even harder. Going and living out this love for his unfaithful wife. A woman who is loved by another man, or as the NET translates, showing love to your wife again, even though she loves another man. But God's not asking Hosea to do anything that he wasn't already doing. Because he goes on to say in verse 1, that he is to love his unfaithful wife, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they return to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Which clearly right there means um, God despises oatmeal raisin cookies, guys. They are not the healthier alternative by simply putting fruit in it, okay? So just, can we just agree as a church that like, we're just gonna stick with chocolate chip cookies? Or, or, if you really want God to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful baker, white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. Can I get an ooh? I was more thinking, can I get an amen, not an ooh? The white chocolate part or the macadamia nut part? Really, it's just sugar. It's too much. I think we need to like pause for a moment. This is going sideways fast. Should we get back to Hosea? I wish I had a white chocolate macadamia nut cookie right now. Here's the deal, though. We go back to Mount Sinai. God made a couple of things clear to his people. He made 10 things clear to his people, but the two at the top of the list, they were to have no other gods other than him or next to him. And they were to worship no other gods other than him or alongside him. It was to be God and God alone. But the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they grew impatient with God. They were grateful for all he had done in making them into a, into a people, into a, into a nation, but they were like, this. There's only so much God's capable of. That's become clear. And so they began hearing things of this uh, Canaanite God named Baal. They, they, they called him the God of fertility and, and, and prosperity. Like, that sounds good, doesn't it? Like, we should get some of that. Because he's probably going to make us not just into a nation, but into a great nation. And then he'll make us great again, just like we were 200 years ago, back in the days of King David and Solomon. And so they added some of this worship. They, the men, they, they began having sex with cult prostitutes in the temple as part of their worship. And the women would bake raisin cakes and they would offer them to Baal, a, a pagan practice that we see Isaiah and Jeremiah make brief mention of. But Hosea's story here, it helps us see into the heart of God, seeing Israel's religious syncretism. They're bringing together and blending together both their worship of Yahweh and their worship of Baal. And they began to now see it. We see it the way God saw it as a, as a defilement of this exclusive, intimate relationship they were to have with God and God alone. They were playing the whore. They were going after other gods, whoever would give them whatever they desired. And his point here is that what 
Israel had done to God was no less offensive than what Hosea's wife had done to him. And as we see into the heart of God, we begin to see the depth of our own sin. Seeing it the way God sees it, seeing that our sin is no less offensive to God than Israel's idolatry or Hosea's wife's adultery. We see ourselves playing the whore. We see ourselves going after other lovers, going after whoever will give us whatever we desire in hopes they'll give us what God clearly appears to be unable or unwilling to provide us and thereby defiling this intimate, exclusive relationship that was meant to be with God and God alone, sharing that intimacy with another. But the more we come to see the depth of our sin, the more we come to see the extent of God's love, don't we? Seeing it not as a response, but as a choice, right? A love that, that God, who the Apostle John says is himself love, chooses to express and chooses to pour out on us, showing that love is not an emotion that you feel, but a choice that you make and an action that you take. Does that make sense? Love is not an emotion you feel. It's not the tingles. It is, but it isn't. No, love is a choice that you make and an action that you take. And we see this when we flip back to Deuteronomy 7, to this sermon that Moses delivered to the people before Joshua led them across the Jordan River and into the promised land of Canaan. Moses, he says, for you are, speaking to the people of Israel, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, he has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And before they got too excited, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Or actually, you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought out you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Of all the great civilizations that God could have chosen to love, he chose to love them. Not the Sumerians, not the um, Mesopotamians, not the Egyptians, but them, these descendants of Abraham, choosing to love them knowing full well that they would never love him the way that he loved them, yet keeping a promise that he made to Abraham and choosing to love the children of Israel, his chosen, beloved children. Because he's seeing into the heart of God, it helps us to see that the way God loves doesn't look like the way the world loves, does it? The way God loves doesn't look like the way the world loves. God's love, it's not like a Hollywood rom-com movie. It doesn't look like a Hallmark movie or a Hallmark card. Instead, it looks a bit more like this. Paul, Paul describes God's love this way. He says, God's love is patient and kind. God's love doesn't envy or boast. God's love isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. God's love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things, and God's love never ends. 
That is the love that God has chosen to pour out. That is also the love God has commanded us as recipients of his love to reflect to others, to all others, to one another, Jesus says, to our neighbor, Jesus says, and even to our enemy, Jesus says. Whether we think they are deserving or not, just as Hosea chose to love his unfaithful wife, just as God chose to love his unfaithful people. This is my commandment, Jesus says in John 15, not my suggestion, not my personal opinion. This is my command of you, of us, that you love one another. How, you might ask? Let me answer. Jesus says, as I have loved you, as I am about to show you my love He says, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for another. Jesus says that we should be known, we should be recognized by the world as his followers, as his disciples, by our what? By our love. Not our critique on social media, not our protest of this, that, and the other, but our love. A love that we choose to express. Jesus said we should be known by our love, our choice to love, our choice to lay down our lives, giving of ourselves and living for the good of others. And that is exactly how Isaiah went on to respond, making a choice to love, a choice that cost him, we're going to see. It says in verse 2, he says, so I bought her, his wife, I bought my wife for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And we see here not only how costly love is, we also see how degrading sin can be. We're not exactly sure why Hosea had to buy back his wife, but scholars in general believe that she had likely found herself in some form of slavery, in part because of the amount Hosea had to pay to buy her back. If we flip back to the Mosaic Law in Exodus 21, it says that if your ox gored a slave, meaning like he got real mad one day and he like shoved his horn into him. That's what gored means. It means what you thought it meant. It's one of those words you don't have to define. You just know it's not good. Uh, An ox doesn't gore you, it gores you. And if your ox gored someone's slave, you owed him 30 shekels of silver. And so some have estimated the value of a homer and a lethic of barley at at about 15 shekels, bringing the total to about 30. And if you're wondering, like, what is a homer? Uh, It's not a yellow cartoon character. Uh, No, it's about eight bushels. Uh, And a lethic's about half a homer, so about four bushels. And you're like, thanks, Pastor Ash. You defined a word I don't know with a word I don't know. Um, So if you're wondering what in the world a bushel is, Uh, One, clearly you didn't grow up on a farm because a bushel is about uh, this big. It's what we would, it's the unit of measure for grain. And also though, I think if you're wondering what a homer and a bushel and a peck and a hug around the neck are, um, you might finally be ready to agree on a standardized base 10 system of measurement. Like say, I don't know, the metric system that 95% of the world is already using. That has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just... End daylight savings time and move to metric. Amen? (laughs) Bears fans were all united this week in the trade and getting DJ Moore. We actually have a wide receiver, and all people are united 
in, now we're not on United Metric System, but we reunited this week. Last week's story, though, in chapter two, we saw God cut off his wife's path, didn't we? He was, he was raising up hedges and building walls. And what we saw last week is that at some point, she reluctantly acknowledged, you know what? It was better for me back then when I was with my husband than, than now. In whatever degrading situation she had found herself in, she may have been able to not afford this life of luxury that she was pursuing as she chased after other lovers. She, she may have found herself in debt, indebted or enslaved to her lender, possibly even sold into slavery by one of her ex-lovers. Others think that this life of whoredom she was living, it may have led to her becoming a religious cult prostitute as well. With her body being used and abused by other men in their supposed sexual worship of Baal. But whatever the cause, what we, what we know from this is that Hosea's wife, this woman, this image bearer, she became the property of another. And the value of her life was reduced to nothing more than some silver coins and some grains of barley and the way in which her body could be used to please a man. The story reveals how dangerous and degrading sin can be, not just our own, but the sin of others. But it also reveals how costly love is. It cost Hosea to go and love his wife again. We've already seen it, obviously, it cost him financially. But it cost him socially. Most most anyone else in this culture, they they would have divorced her. They would have left her. They may have even had her stoned. But not Hosea. And so imagine what people must have thought about them. Imagine what people were saying about them. Imagine down the road as they're walking through the market, the looks that they got. Imagine the whispers behind their back, the gossip about them. It cost him. But it also cost him relationally. It cost him relationally because you don't just go back to the way things were, at least not right away. You don't just flip a switch and come back from this. No, the the, the reconciliation, the the restoration, it was going to take time. And that was the case for Hosea and his wife. We see this here in verse 3. And Hosea, he says to his wife, after he has bought her back, he says, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. See, he freed his wife and paid her debt in a, in a single instantaneous transaction, didn't he? But the relational reconciliation, the, the restoration of this marriage, it took time. It, time. it took time both for the forgiver and the forgiven. It took time for both of them. Time to rebuild this intimacy that had been defiled, the trust that had been lost. And so they lived together as husband and wife, but they had not yet come together sexually as husband and wife, at least not yet. And like he, he easily could have just forced himself on her, couldn't he? But he didn't. But on the other hand, his sexual abstinence, it, it wasn't punitive, as though he was disgusted by her 
uh, depriving her or withholding from her or humiliating her as though this was some sort of passive-aggressive power play over her. No, this, this was an expression of his love for her. And I think we see it conveyed a bit better in the way the NET translates the end of this verse, saying, I also will wait for you. It's got a little Mumford and Sons ring to it, doesn't it? I will wait. I will wait for you. Because she needed time. She needed time to not only break free from her sinful past, as he says here, but she needed time to heal from it. She needed time to heal from the shame from the trauma, I'm sure from the physical aspects of what had happened to her, she, she needed time to heal from all of it. She needed time to forgive herself for what she had done to her husband. She needed time to see herself as his beloved bride once again and to receive his love. And she needed time to love herself again as his beloved husband to love herself so that she could love her husband, so that she could love him as her neighbor, so that she could love him the way she now began to love herself once again. And Hosea loved her enough to wait to enjoy the return of their sexual intimacy, giving her the time that she needed. Guys, reconciliation and restoration take time. They can happen. By the power of God, they can happen, but they take time. It requires patience, and it takes time, both for the forgiver and the forgiven. And this story, the story of a compassionate, patient, loving husband who chose to respond to his unfaithful wife by saying, I love you, I have, I have come for you to free you, to forgive you, to rescue and redeem you, and, and to wait with you as you heal, as we heal. It is a story that helps us to see into the heart of God and to see his love for us. But let's not forget, this is a story, the story of Hosea's love for his wife. It's a metaphor for God's love for his people, isn't it? And what we see next in verse 4 is that God's people experienced a similar time of separation in their exile. Look at verse 4. It says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Their sin had become so entangled in every aspect of their lives and their worship that they needed distance. They needed time away to see how devastating it had become to begin to untangle everything that they had tangled. And so they would go on to dwell for many days, many centuries, in fact, in exile without their king or prince, but under someone else's king. As the Assyrians, they came in and they invaded and they, they defeated them as a nation. They destroyed their capital in Samaria in 722 after a three-year besiegement, a, a story we read in 2 Kings 18. And then it says in verse 11, it says, the king of Assyria, he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, taking them into exile because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. They were exiled for playing the whore, for their adultery against God. And what he says here is they had so interwoven their worship of God and Baal that they were not only offering sacrifices to Yahweh, 
but they were also erecting pillars to pagan gods. They were led by the priests who, who wore the ephods they were supposed to, but then they went home and worshiped their household gods. It had infected every aspect of their being. They were no longer living as people who were set apart and holy. And so they needed this distance, they needed this separation, this time away of many days, of many years in order to reflect on their sin and seeing the danger their spiritual whoredom had put them in and the path to destruction that was leading them on, seeing it the way God sees it. They were living a long time, Eugene Peterson writes in the message, stripped of security and protection without religion or comfort, godless and prayerless. Once again, learning to rely on God in the wilderness of exile. A scenario, a situation, a setting set aside for them to ultimately repent of their sin and this complete reorientation of their lives, turning from sin and returning to God and trusting in God and God alone to provide and protect for them. And that's what we see here at the end of the story. We see the result of God's love in this message of hope, the good news of Hosea in verse 5. Look down with me. It says, And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in latter days. Just as Hosea and his wife would one day return to the sexual intimacy that they had once enjoyed with one another, God's beloved people would one day return to him, seeking him, desiring him, worshiping, living in faithful obedience to him, and submitting to their rightful king, not the kings that they had appointed to reign over them, to reign over their fractured kingdom that led to their corruption. No, but the king appointed by God. A king appointed from the line of David, reigning over God's singular, united kingdom, leading to their salvation. And they weren't going to return reluctantly, but fearfully. Not, not, not cowering fear, but, but standing in awe of his glory and majesty, living in his goodness, not today, but in latter days. And yet what history shows is that the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, they never actually returned home from their Assyrian exile. At least not in the way that we think of the tribe of Judah returning from Babylon, returning to Jerusalem. Instead, we refer to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel as, as uh, the ten lost tribes. Settling in their places of exile and then spreading from there, becoming what James and Peter refer to in their epistles as the dispersion. The Jewish diaspora. But not only that, to, to this day, a descendant of David has yet to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign over Israel. And so there must be some other fuller meaning to the good news of Hosea that he's pointing to here. And even, even if you had never heard of Hosea before we started this series, you had never heard his story before, I got to think you, you recognize aspects of this story, you, as though you've, you've heard parts of this before, but in another story, you, you, you heard it somewhere else, and that's because you have. You know this story. You know the story of a groom set by God to redeem his unfaithful bride. You know the story of what it cost him to, 
to free her from slavery. You know the story of this gift of reconciliation. You know the story of a king who reigns over God's kingdom. You know the story because Jesus is that bridegroom, amen? He is the bridegroom, and we are the unfaithful bride. We are enslaved to sin, and that has infected our desires as we pursue other lovers, offering sacrifices and worshiping whoever will give us whatever we desire, defiling our intimacy in our exclusive relationship with God. And as we see into the heart of God, seeing the depth of our sin against God, we see the extent of his love for us. Seeing the cost of the gift given to us. Knowing that the greater the cost, the greater the gift. And the greater the gift, the greater the gratitude for the gift. And the gift that Jesus purchased for us, man, it's better than any $2 cup of coffee. It's, it's better than the most caffeinated, handcrafted espresso drink on the menu. Because the gift he offers us is redemption. It's reconciling us to God. It is restoring this intimacy of our fractured relationship with God. Freeing us. Forgiving us. Knowing that who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed, we sing sanctifying us, cleansing us of our shame, clothing us with fine linen and bright and pure, presenting us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. And we receive that love. And then we are called to go out and reflect that love to the world, living out that love, loving like Jesus, a love that cost Jesus, didn't it? Because the cost of that gift was something that nobody in the drive-thru in front of you would ever pay. It's something that they could not pay. Because the value placed on our freedom, man, it was more than a few pieces of silver and grains of barley. God thinks so much more of you than just that. Though the price of our freedom was life. Jesus exchanged his life for ours. His death in place of ours. As Jesus loved the church, his unfaithful bride, he loved us and gave himself up for her, for us. He died for us. That is the love that we have received. That is the love we are commanded to reflect, Christ's love. And as we return to his presence, and as we seek his love as his chosen, welcomed into his presence, free and forgiven, we stand in awe of his glory, amen? Our king, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the root and descendant of David, our king alive, having defeated death, seated at the right hand of the father, reigning over God's kingdom at this very moment, who will in the latter days return and restore God's once very good creation. And by entering into the story of Hosea and seeing into the heart of God, we see the love that God has chosen to pour out on us. And if you take nothing else away from Hosea's story, know this, God loves you. He loves us. 
He loves the world, his world that he created. And he has chosen to pour out his love, love that is patient with us, love that is kind toward us, love that doesn't envy or boast about what he did for us and hold it over our heads, love that isn't arrogant or rude or insist on its own way, but love that we saw last week that speaks tenderly to us, alluring us, guiding us on his way, a love that's not irritable or resentful toward us, regretting what he did, a love that never rejoices in our sin, but rejoices in the truth of his love, in who Jesus is and all Jesus accomplished. This love of God who is himself love, love that he has chosen to pour out on you and on us is a love that bears all things, bearing our sin. A love that endures all things, that will endure until the end of the story, the telos of the story, when his once very good creation will be very good again. A love that never ends. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.